Hi, my friends. I do this work with all my heart for you. So please contribute generously to Future Primitive. my friends who listen to Future Primitive. It's a beautiful morning here in Santa Fe, and I'm sitting with Richard Davidson, and it's a privilege. We are at Upaya Zen Center. Richard Davidson received his PhD in personality, psychopathology, and psychophysiology from Harvard University. Would you like to say a few things about yourself, Richie? I would appreciate it. Uh, Well, I'm a psychologist and neuroscientist by training, and uh, uh, I'm interested in um, differences among people in how they respond to life's slings and arrows, to adversity, and how we can cultivate well-being, how we can... um, cultivate resilience, uh, help people to navigate the stresses and challenges of life with more equanimity, with more grace and compassion uh, for themselves and for others. Uh, And we're interested in the brain mechanisms that are associated with all of this and how those um, changes in the brain may affect the body in ways which are important for physical health as well. So we are here, you are part of the faculty teaching um, a session called Zen and the Brain, and particularly research on consciousness. And uh, so I wanted to ask you, how does researching consciousness uh, affect our possibility for compassion? Well, uh, it's a very important question. I think that um, uh, compassion, one component of compassion is understanding, having a clearer sense of the true nature of our minds uh, and of reality. And this is where the study of consciousness and the experience of, of consciousness, the basic experience of the fundamental nature of awareness, Uh, is something that I think can be of great benefit because um, when we can see our consciousness in this way, uh, what we appreciate is that all people have a disposition to be happy uh, and to, uh, 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 to decrease suffering and to enjoy well-being. And when we see this, it provides the seeds for the expression of compassion, because every human being um, has the same basic innate instincts. Uh, And uh, that helps us, I think, to take the perspective of others, and it helps us to um, understand that uh, others have the same wish that we do. And so uh, we can act in ways which perhaps can be more helpful in promoting well-being in other people. And one of the 
um, one of the things that His Holiness the Dalai Lama says is that the best way to cultivate happiness oneself is to be kind toward others. And it turns out that the hard-nosed research actually supports that, um, that uh, uh, the, the most um, uh, expedient way of generating happiness and producing changes in the brain in circuits that we know to be involved in happiness is in fact to be generous and kind toward others. Uh, and so um, uh, I think that uh, uh, there's an important grain of truth here and um, uh, it also, this knowledge I think helps us to uh, orient ourselves in an other-directed way to do everything we can to benefit others, because through that we're also benefiting ourselves. So, kindness is a an enhancer of neuroplasticity, perhaps. Uh, one can change one's brain by being kind... Uh, I think in in certain ways you can say kindness is an enhancer of neuroplasticity. Um, uh, Kindness also takes advantage of neuroplasticity. Neuroplasticity in and of itself is not positive or negative. It's not good or bad. Uh, It depends. It depends on how we fill our mind. Um, uh, If we uh, are exposed to negative influences, then the neuroplasticity that we have will result in the brain changing in ways that are um, deleterious, that are not healthy. Uh, Whereas if um, we fill our minds with wholesome thoughts and um, uh, aspirations, then we can harness neuroplasticity for a positive purpose. So what is the best uh, age for the formation of the brain in a positive way? Uh, I would say from everything we know from a neuroscientific perspective, it's very important to begin as early as possible. Um, We know that the brain is more plastic earlier in life. Uh, That is why it's easier for young children to learn a second language than it is for adults. It's why it's easier for young children to learn to play a musical instrument than it is for adults. Uh, the young, adult, young children's brains are inherently more malleable. They're more flexible. Now, that doesn't mean that the brain of an adult is incapable of changing. It is fully capable of changing. Plasticity exists throughout life, but it is much more pronounced earlier in life. So... Um, Some of the research that we're doing now in our center is focused on very young children. Uh, We are working with preschool kids, four and five years of age, uh, and we've developed a curriculum that we call the kindness curriculum, uh, where we are attempting to teach them simple skills of mindfulness and kindness very, very early in life, because it's our conjecture that uh, if they are taught these skills at that point, the possibility that they will really be very enduring is much greater. Uh, And our early findings are very suggestive and are very encouraging. Uh, We're now working with about 200 children in the public school system in Madison, Wisconsin, uh, teaching these practices uh, in a secular way 
And um, uh, if these initial findings are as encouraging as our first set of data, uh, it would give us a lot of impetus to deploy this on a very large scale. It's beautiful. Um, So kindness and compassion just as violence, perhaps, uh, are learned behaviors or can be learned behaviors. Do you uh, think we can have predisposition to these emotions uh, at birth? Well, uh, those are an important set of questions. First, I would say that uh, it's very reasonable to think of kindness and compassion and happiness as skills. Um, They are skills that can be enhanced through training. Having said that, there's also an increasing... um, range of hard-nosed scientific research that clearly indicates that we are born with an innate bias, an innate propensity for kindness. Um, There's no question about that. Um, Very young infants at six months of age prefer to watch interactions that are kind interactions, cooperative, helping. Uh, They prefer that over interactions that are aggressive and um, antagonistic uh, encounters. Uh, That preference is clear from very, very early on in life. Now, it's also true that some individuals are likely to have this kind of propensity more expressed um, compared to other people. Uh, And that's just the nature of human variation. But I believe that each human being, unless they're grossly brain damaged, has the innate capacity, the innate seeds of kindness and compassion. And just like language, we all have the capacity for language. We're all born with an innate capacity for language. But the expression of language requires that we be raised in a linguistic community. And similarly for kindness and compassion, we're all born with these seeds, but it requires that they be nurtured. And if they're not nurtured, they will atrophy. Uh, And so one of the roles of contemplative training is to nourish these seeds uh, so that they do blossom and flourish. Um, uh, And uh, there is scientific evidence to suggest that that's possible. I, uh, I understand that you have just returned from India and... uh I was wondering if you'd like to talk about your journey a little bit. Uh, well, very briefly, I was India, in India primarily to uh, participate in a meeting with His Holiness the Dalai Lama uh, in the Drepung Monastery in the south of India, in Mungad. Uh, and um, the meeting was a historic occasion because this was the first time that scientists were ever brought to a Tibetan monastery. Uh, and uh, the audience was 10,000 monks. Uh, and uh, this was a, um, a huge act of courage on the part of His Holiness to invite us. Um, but he very much wanted his monastic um, community and the, um, the abbots uh, of these monasteries particularly to see firsthand what this dialogue with scientists was about. Uh, And uh, for His Holiness, I think this was a 
huge milestone. And uh, it also was the occasion to celebrate the first change in the monastic curriculum in the Galoop monasteries in 400 years, which is the formal introduction of modern science. Um, so uh, it was quite an event, and uh, uh, I believe that the ripples from this uh, will be felt for many years to come. Let's talk uh, a little bit more about emotion and the brain. Would you speak about your latest work with emotions? Well, uh, I, I wrote a recent book called The Emotional Life of Your Brain, and uh, that book um, describes 30 years of research that uh, we've done in my laboratory uh, that's primarily focused on variations among people in how they respond to emotional challenges. Uh, and it starts with the premise that there is huge variation among people in how they respond to uh, the stresses and strains of everyday life. And um, uh, what I do in the book is to characterize six different styles that are based upon neuroscientific research. They are different ways in which we vary in how we respond to emotional challenges. So I'll give one example, one style we call the resilience style, and it reflects the uh, the rapidity with which you recover from adversity. So some people, after a stressful challenge, will have the, the negative emotions persist for a long period of time. Other people come back, to, bound, come back down to baseline very quickly. Mm -hmm. And um, coming back down to baseline quickly is a mark of resilience. Uh, and people vary in where they fall along that continuum. And the good news is that we know something about the brain circuits that mediate this, and it can, these brain circuits exhibit plasticity, and they can change. And through certain kinds of training, and we've found in recent work that certain types of meditation training, particularly compassion practices, will alter um, the neural response that underlies this style of resilience and will lead to more rapid recovery following a stressful challenge. So uh, we're going to um, close this uh, moment with you. And uh, just I just want to ask you, what would you like to say in closing? Well, uh, we are at a very, um, I think, uh, critical moment in history. Uh, there are both hopeful signs as well as um, distressing signs in the planet. The, um, uh, the way we have failed to be mindful of our environment and the um, issues related to climate change uh, are um, quite significant. The economic crisis that the world is in uh, as a consequence of, uh, I think, primarily greed um, uh, has made for very difficult challenges. On the other hand, uh, I think there is a recognition among very large segments of the population that there are better ways of conducting ourselves. And um, the scientific research that we've been doing, I think, can play a small role in helping to catalyze change, in helping to show that um, 
that things the way they are are not inevitable, that we can actually take more responsibility for our own mind uh, and, um, and, and transform our minds in ways that will promote uh, increased cooperation and kindness and increased well-being uh, and also a greater sensitivity to the environment around us so that we can be better um, caretakers of the planet. Uh, and so I think that this um, is a, uh, a hopeful sign amid uh, other distressing um, characteristics, but uh, one that gives me confidence that uh, uh, there is a, a very bright future for humanity. Thank you so very much for your presence. Thank you. Pleasure to be this to do this. <laughs>